The other night, I am in my car on the way home from grocery shopping, and I get this text. Actually, it's a sext from this Republican chick that I hook up with sometimes. You hook up with Republicans? Yeah. If you work on the Hill long enough, it's going to happen. And I'm sure it's just as weird for them as it is for me. So this chick, we'll, we'll just call her Kathy. She, she sexed me. And she's at an event at a TGI Fridays. <laughs> and she wants me to come pick her up. For sex? Yeah. So you're, you have like an enemies with benefits relationship, basically. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I get to this TGI Fridays and it's like packed and I'm kind of, you know, looking around and it's a little bit dark and it's kind of loud and I'm, I'm maneuvering to the, through the crowd, like trying to find this chick. And, you know, I, I pass some guy and he's got like the t-shirt with the, with like the, the fake Obama birth certificate from Kenya. And I'm, I'm looking around, I'm kind of taking this in and it dawns on me like every, everybody here is like white and old and kind of angry. And I realized like, holy, holy crap, I'm at, this is a tea party rally. So I'm pushing my way through the crowd. And finally I see Kathy, she's sitting at the bar and I walk over to her and I'm like, what are you doing here? Isn't this a tea party rally? And she says, yes, it is a tea party rally. And she hoists this huge margarita with like an American flag in it. <laughs> and she says, and I am the Republican hall monitor. And I'm just like, what? Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The, the tea party, I mean, they don't, they don't like the Republicans any more than, than I do. And she looks at me with like this little frowny face and says, Oh, Chris, don't be so sad. They just like us better. And, and then she leans out and yells at this guy walking by like, Hey, Tommy, Tommy, come here for a second. And it's the, it's the first dude I saw, the guy with the, with the birth certificate t-shirt. It says, this is my friend, Chris, and he is a Democrat. And, and the guy's like, Oh, really? And I'm like, yeah. Hey, how you doing? And she says, Tommy, what is your most important issue for the election? And he says, well, I, I just think, you know, we got a president that isn't even a U.S. citizen. And I want to see the birth certificate. And I'm like, Ugh. I'm like, dude, it's online. And he's like, no, no, I want to see the real one. I'm already thinking about punching this guy in the face. And I'm just like, yeah, all right, cool. And then she says, Tommy, who are you voting for in the election? And he was like, the Republicans, duh. After he walks away, I turn to Kathy and I'm like, hey, cool, thanks for introducing me to the retard. That was great. And she's like, yeah, I know, he's a retard, but he's our retard. And then she, she picks up her glass of margarita and she waves it at the crowd and says, they're all our retards. And they are gonna sweep the Republicans into controlling the House and the Senate in this election. 
And you're gonna hook up with this woman? <laughs> well, like, not at this point. I mean, I I don't know if this point it's if she if she sexted me or was just just wanted me me to come there so she could gloat. So fortunately, this awesome thing happens. This really beautiful woman comes by. I mean, she's really put together. She's she looks gorgeous. She's got like this really nice uh, tight fitting, a really nice cocktail dress on. She looks really classy, but I, I look kind of closely at her she's got like this necklace it's like diamonds with a tea bag in the middle and she's got a concealed firearm on i reach over to her and i say hi hey uh what's your name and she says mary and i'm like hey mary i'm chris and i'm a democrat and she's kind of like mm. and i said and this is kathy and she's your republican hall monitor and she's kind of like, doesn't really know what that means either. And, oh my God. you know, she's kind of like looking at both of us. And I'm like, Mary, what's the issue that's most important to you? And she says, gun control. I believe in the Second Amendment. And I'm afraid that Obama is going to take our guns. And I said, well, you obviously know who the Brady Foundation is, right? And she's like, yeah, of course I do. They're basically our arch enemies and i'm like right well your arch enemy gave president obama a gun control report card recently a straight across the board f's in all of their categories background checks gun show loopholes gun trafficking guns in public federal assault weapons ban standing up to the gun lobby and leadership they gave him f's in everything mary so Mary just looks back at me and she's just like, you know, kind of looking at me like, what are you talking about? What what planet are you from, buddy? And and right then Kathy leans in to her ear and says, oh, God, Mary, he's totally lying. Of course, Obama wants to take away your guns. He's he's a Muslim. Oh, no. Yeah. And I just look at, at Kathy at that point and I'm like, all right, it's on. It is fucking on. So I say, Mary, are you concerned about the bailouts? And she's like, oh my God, definitely. I mean, Wall Street doesn't care about Main Street and we just totally have to fix that. We have to reel these people in because they're just destroying the country. And, and I say, okay, well, if you really believe that, then I don't know what you're doing supporting Republicans because they are the party of Wall Street. We need to build a wage base in this country, and you're not going to do that by protecting Wall Street. And at this point, Kathy says, like, blah, blah, blah. This is typical Democrats demonizing capitalism with all their complicated arguments. And that's why the Republicans and the Tea Party are to stick together, because we understand that keeping it simple and basic values are the way to go. Right, Mary? So I step in close to Mary and I look her in the eye and I say, well, I don't think you have to dumb things down for Mary. I think Mary's a lot smarter than you think she is. And I think she can understand what I'm talking about. And then I offered to buy Mary a drink. No. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, that would be great. 
So I turned my back on Kathy, I held out my elbow, and we walked away. Just, I just don't think there is such a thing as conservative protest movements. The, it's an oxymoron to think about conservative protest. Zoe Trod is a scholar of American history, contemporary slavery, and protest literature. She says that it's actually incorrect to refer to the Tea Party as a protest movement. The protest is inherently about uh, calling for change. It's about a sort of progressive movement into the future. This is how we define protest against the status quo. And conservatism, obviously, is about conserving the status quo. It's about not moving forward. It's about standing still in the present, resisting change, and possibly moving backwards. But you certainly can protest change. I mean, we're seeing that right now. You can resist change, but you can't do that within a protest movement. The, the word doesn't apply to you. You don't get to appropriate a word that has belonged to progressives for the last 200 years. And this has been a strategy of the right wing for generations, this attempt to... Um, appropriate uh, popular figures of protest from the past. The white citizens' councils in the 1950s were trying really hard to set themselves in a mould of Abraham Lincoln and of Thomas Jefferson. At one moment they even tried to uh, borrow from the abolitionist John Brown, one of the key figures of interracial equality in the 19th century. So Glenn Beck deciding to stand, you know, two steps below, I think, where, where Martin Luther King stood in 1963 at the Lincoln Memorial, you know, it's not the first time that the right wing has, I feel, inappropriately tried to uh, walk in the footsteps of progressive people from the past. And how Glenn Beck can imagine that he is the rightful heir of the uh, desegregation movement of the 50s and 60s is mind-boggling, but it's part of a tradition that right wing people have engaged in. It's about giving what is fundamentally a very selfish political philosophy, a ring of patriotism by borrowing from more generous and more just people in the past. He's trying to suggest that he and his followers are a sort of new oppressed minority. Glenn Beck's doing nothing new. He's not even particularly interesting in this. The pro-slavery types in the 19th century and the uh, white supremacists feeling oppressed by black freedom in the early 20th century who went about lynching people. You know, the white southerners who wanted to resist desegregation in, at mid-20th century, they all felt like they were oppressed and their culture was vanishing and black freedom was somehow going to turn into forced interracial marriage that was going to mean this sort of nation of miscegenation and Everything was under threat. There was real fear at the heart of the anger that was driving lynchings and, and segregation. And that moment of shock has recurred 
at least for the last centuries, you know, since emancipation, for the last 150 years, we're coming into the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. And ever since that moment, since the Civil War ended 150 years ago, we have had this cyclical movement of a push for greater equality, for more rights, for more people, from progressives, a backlash, which often becomes a sort of blacklash against those movements by nostalgic, often Southern-led uh, resistance organizations who try and borrow figures from the past to give themselves some sense of legitimacy and, and a sort of American patriotism. And there's a struggle that happens. And I think we're just seeing this happening all over again. So when you say struggle, do you mean that there are like real protesters engaged in battle with fake protesters? reactionaries? I promise you that for every right-wing backlash and nostalgic attempt to prevent change that has happened over the last 200 years, whether it's trying to prevent black freedom or black equality or women's rights or women's votes or abortion rights, there has been a progressive group meeting them on that field of memory and performing their own counter-memories, doing their own appropriations, which I would argue often have a, a lot more uh, authenticity. So for every white supremacist who tried to set them in the mold of, of Abraham Lincoln, there would be a civil rights activist or leader or writer or artist who would perform in response a sort of counter-appropriation where they would uh, set their own movement, whether it's anti-lynching or civil rights or second wave feminism or the black power movement in the sort of Lincoln tradition or the Douglas tradition. They would uh, seize back these figures and these earlier protest movements. And so I'm eager to see if the same thing happens now. You know, it's who are we going to remember and how are we going to counter this? In the fall of 1992, I move into a house with three other guys, Tom, Corey, and Mike. We're all students together in the film program at Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana. Tom is from Colorado, and like me, he's really into comic books. In fact, Tom is the guy who turns me on to the work of Carl Barks, the Disney cartoonist who created the magical world of Donald Duck. Corey is from Washington State, and we share a huge passion for David Lynch's Twin Peaks. Between us, we have all the episodes on VHS, and we can both quote from pretty much every character in the show. Mike is from Arkansas. And well, we don't have anything in common. Mike is a wealthy, religious, conservative, right-wing Republican. I remember the very first day we all move into this house. It's kind of incredible, but Mike has this giant framed picture that he hangs up in the living room without even saying anything to anyone. He just puts it up because, well, he assumes we will all be thrilled to see this giant portrait of Mike's Boy Scout troop standing in the Oval Office with Ronald Reagan. Actually, Mike would get angry every time we referred to this group of boys as Boy Scouts because they were called something else. I've already forgotten what it was, but it was something ridiculous like the We Patriots. Mike said it was all hush-hush, but that the We Patriots had played a major role in helping Ronald Reagan bring down the Soviet Union. For Mike, there was no greater American, no greater man than Ronald Reagan. So, after about a week of waking up and seeing Ronald Reagan every morning as I walked to the shower, 
I realize I have to do something because I am not a fan of Ronald Reagan's. In fact, every time I see this picture of Ronald Reagan and the Wee Patriots, all I can think about is pedophilia. So I pull a record out from my collection and I tack it up on the wall. It's an LP by the band The Dayglow Abortions, their album Feed Us a Fetus. It's a pretty horrible album cover. Ronnie is sitting down smiling like a wax dummy and Nancy stands behind him. She's got her arm on his shoulder, perhaps propping him up, but on a plate in front of them is a fetus with garnish and everything. It's a terrible, terrible image, but one befitting of a punk rock band that sings songs like Ronald McReagan, Kill the Hosers, and I'm My Own God. As you can imagine, when Mike sees this, he flips out. He tells me that he finds it so offensive that he's actually scared to touch it. But mark my words, friend, he says, if you don't take this satanic abomination down, I will find someone who will. I explained to Mike that I find his Ronald Reagan picture just as offensive as he finds mine, and that if any harm comes to my Dayglow abortion album, then I will be forced to destroy his picture in return. This really sets him off. Do you realize that my picture is signed by Ronald Reagan? If you even touch it, I will sue you for a million dollars in damages. I have so many lawyers in my family, I will put you away, he fumes. I will destroy you. A few days later, Mike calls our first all-house meeting. He calls me an un-American blasphemizer. I call him a fascist moron. Tom calls for a compromise. And so, Mike moves the giant Ronald Reagan picture into his room, and I happily put the Dayglow Abortions album back in the record crate in my room. Mike is a virgin, and proud of it. Of course, there are countless stories of women who've attempted to take his virginity away, but he tells us time and time again that he's always resisted because he has beliefs and values. Plus, he says, science has proved that AIDS comes from premarital sex. Now, I don't recall the circumstances, but around Columbus Day weekend, this high school girl I know, Jennifer, runs away from home and moves in with me into my room. And this is just too much for Mike to deal with. Even though she's barely three years younger than me, he says my degeneracy has put his eternal salvation at risk. He calls another all-house meeting. He says that he's consulted with his lawyer about the situation and learned that I've put everyone in danger. Jennifer, he says, could accuse us all of rape and send us all to prison. According to Mike's lawyer, the law only recognizes households. The fact that she's in my room is irrelevant. When I ask Mike why he thinks Jennifer would even accuse our household of rape, he says, this is what young girls do. They're unstable. Then he threatens to move into a motel and bill me for the cost if she doesn't leave. Luckily, the situation doesn't escalate any further. Jennifer takes off. 
the very next day. She tells me that she likes this other guy better than me, and he doesn't have roommates. And so she moves in with him. When I tell Mike this, he says, I told you, dude, she was unstable. Then, as October comes to a close, and with it, the 1992 presidential election, Mike starts to freak out. He feels that since he's from Arkansas, it's his duty to warn us about the evils of Bill Clinton, and we're subjected to all kinds of outlandish conspiracy stories of orgies and drugs. Supposedly, Mike's best friend's cousin's neighbor's brother-in-law is a state trooper who's seen everything. On November 4th, Mike drinks himself into a horrible stupor. And when the election is called for Bill Clinton, he calls another all-house meeting. He tells us that the government will soon be coming for him because of his history with the Republicans and his role in the We Patriots, or whatever they were called. He wants to know what we will do when they come for him. Will we let him hide in the basement, or will we sell him out? I have become... The Jew, he says, choking with pain and rage. All three of us are speechless. But finally, Corey opens his mouth. He promises Mike that he's safe here and that he won't tell the government troops anything if they show up. Tom nods his head in agreement and pats Mike on the shoulder. You guys are the best, Mike whimpers. I can't tell you how much this means to me. Then, Mike turns to me. His mouth is quivering and his eyes are brimming with tears. Of course, I want to tell Mike that I've already turned them into our new government overlords and that there are probably agents en route this very moment to take him away. But for the first time since I've met him, I feel something other than contempt. I feel pity. And so, I tell Mike that I, too, will do whatever I can to keep him safe. The next morning, Mike, now sober, coolly informs us that he actually has no need of our protection. He says his father is sending him an assault rifle. He won't look any of us in the eye, but he does look over in my direction, but only to let me know that he looks forward to seeing me later on the battlefield. At the end of the school year, we all go our separate ways. It's my hope that I'll never see Mike again. But the other day, I'm watching television, and there he is, at a tea party rally. He's even wearing his Wee Patriot uniform. And in the roar of the crowd, I can make out his voice, loud and clear. He says, the final battle is now upon us. And so, to prepare, my dear listener, I've gathered together a group of experts, journalists, academics, historians, artists, conspiracy theorists, and friends, to help us take stock of the situation and plan accordingly. So, let's get to it. We'll start with the journalist Will Bunch, author of the book Backlash, Right-Wing Radicals, High-Def Hucksters, and Paranoid Politics in the Age 
of Obama. You know, I traveled across country from uh, Arizona to Massachusetts, talking to people involved in the movement. And, you know, and when I asked them how they got involved in uh, Tea Party type activities, uh, the answers I got were often the same, that, that they were just not comfortable with Barack Obama. You know, they would say, I saw Barack Obama on TV and he was talking about change or he was talking about transformation uh, and it made me very uncomfortable or I felt uneasy with Obama. But um, uh, but what happened, and, and this is something that you can you can see happening in the Internet age in particular, uh, you know, aided by the aided by the right wing media structure of Fox News and talk radio is I think people started looking for what they considered facts, what, what you or I might consider to be conspiracy theories for the most part that, uh, you know, backed up their, their negative reaction to Obama. But when we talk about the Tea Party movement and facts, though, it seems that there are two distinct things going on. For example, those who believe Obama was not born in Hawaii, this is just a denial of facts. I mean, on top of the actual birth certificate, there are birth announcements in two Hawaii newspapers. But when you look at something like the Oath Keepers and their relationship with facts, it seems that we're talking about something different, worse, a whole denial of factual reality. Yeah, the core idea of the Oath Keepers is that that the oath that you take is to the Constitution. So you're giving yourself kind of the power to decide in the field whether you're you're getting an order that's violating the Constitution. Well, that's not the oath they take. The oath they take requires them to uh, follow orders from the commander-in-chief. So kind of the core notion of what they're all about uh, isn't even true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? that's what I'm talking about. It's a denial of reality. And so I just want to ask right off the bat, does this whole thing just boil down to racism? Uh, you know, whether you want to call it racist or rooted in race, um, you know, there, there's an interesting term that's coming to use in the last couple of years, you know, kind of pararacial, which are, I think, are issues that you can say uh, aren't, aren't couched in overtly racial terms, but at the same time have something that, you know, basically get back to people's anxieties about race or ethnicity. And, uh, and, I, and I certainly found a lot of that. But... Um, you know, I think the broader fear is, is the erosion of what you might call white culture in this country. They feel that their culture, which is predominantly white and predominantly Christian, um, uh, and is kind of rooted in parts of America, America that are outside of the cities, generally, whether it's, whether it's suburbs or, or, or more rural areas. And um, they feel their culture is threatened by a number of things. They feel it's threatened by, by, by immigration, uh, even even if they live in areas where there're not a lot of immigrants, but they feel that feel that immigration is a threat. Uh, you know, they've been led to believe, kind of ridiculously, that there's a threat from you know Muslim people settling in this country. You know, and, and I think they also see lifestyle change. You know, they see kind of increasing acceptance of gay rights. You know, perhaps increasing acceptance of say um, you know atheism or whatever. You know, there's a lot of changes, cultural changes in this country that that, that these people I think see as threats, and I, I think. I think the arrival of Obama as president uh, very suddenly to, to these people in 2008 was kind of a jolt that, that made them feel like America was changing too, too much too soon, and, and, and Obama was the symbol of that. And I think that's, that's important to these people, that they show that they're here, that they're not, they're not going away, that they're not fading into irrelevance. I'm always struck by the famous line that Sarah Palin uttered during the 2008 campaign where she was, she was in a small town and she said, it's good to be campaigning again in the pro-America parts of America. And uh, that, that was no gaffe. I mean, that was kind of a, a core belief that when you talk to people, and again, you know, I, I interviewed dozens of Tea Party supporters in the course of doing this book, and 
you know, these are the kind of beliefs that small town America is the pro-America part of America. And, and that when you get to a, a, like an urban area, it's not that it's not America. I mean, perhaps the most critical scene in the whole book is when I was talking to the leaders of the Delaware 912 Patriots who've been getting a lot of attention because of their support of successfully of Christine O'Donnell in the Senate race recently. Uh, I had a long scene in the diner with them where they were basically trying to explain to me that uh, Obama wasn't really the legitimate winner of the 2008 election, and and, he, and even that he did it, that it, he wasn't really the legitimate winner of the state of Delaware, even though their their state, even though he carried Delaware by 100,000 votes, which in, in a small state like Delaware is, is a landslide, basically. And I, I was trying to like, what? Well, I don't get it. What, what are you What are you trying to say? And basically, what they really were saying was that votes from the city of Wilmington, which is uh, predominantly or, or 50% perhaps black and Latino didn't count as much as like their votes from the rural parts of Delaware. And, uh, and it's like, why? And it's like, well, those are, those are the handout people, you know, and, and, uh, you know, that they see these people who are predominantly minorities as being on, on the government dole or whatever. And, and that the, their votes like don't count as much. I mean, it's, it's really a stunning idea when you, when you think about it. And, and it no, is. No, actually it doesn't seem stunning. These people are simply racist morons. It's just that simple. You know, I think human nature is to look for simpler answers to the complex problems, and 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 the problems that America is facing right now are complex. I mean, uh, I don't think there's any bigger problem that we have right now than than the destruction of the middle class, and uh, and uh, that this is something that's been going on in this country for 40 or 50 years, and uh, it's complicated. It has to do with globalization. Uh, it has to do with automation, uh, for example. I mean, if you're if you're somebody who is from Wisconsin and you've been in manufacturing and, and all of a sudden you're 48 years old and, and your job has been outsourced to China and it's not coming back and, and you've got to figure out what you're going to do for the next 20, 25, 30 years of your life, that's, that's pretty scary, you know? And, and uh, this is the cauldron of, you know, anxiety and terror, if you will, that's out there. I think these pseudo facts are part of their, part of their defense of their culture. And uh, there's some people who are very good at cynically manipulating these fears and transferring them to Obama. In the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, photographer Richard Mizrak wandered the deserted streets of New Orleans with his cameras. It became more like a post-apocalyptic movie. Yeah, it, 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 it felt like that. Um, these are the kind of things you expect to see when, when the end of the world happens. Richard Mizrak spent weeks photographing the disaster, but he didn't rush to publish his photos as others did. He put the work away for almost five years. I actually was going to put it away for longer, but I felt that, you know, basically people had already started to forget about Katrina. And uh, I thought maybe the five-year anniversary was a good time to sort of introduce some of the work. And I went back through 3,000 negatives, and one one small portion of that large shoot uh, popped out of me, and that was the photographs of people's messages in spray paint and charcoal and pencil, whatever they could find on their homes and cars and trees. And um, I felt like for the first time I heard the people's voices, um, the people that the survivors or the rescue workers, people that were on the ground. And it made me very uh, self-conscious, if you will, of um, the fact that whether it's a Spike Lee film or a Robert Paldori photograph or all these 
other um, important, really, really important uh, documents and, and treatments of, of uh, Katrina, that there was always an editorial component that sort of overshadowed everything. There was always the voice of the artist or the filmmaker or the writer. And um, I found this to be an opportunity to let people speak for themselves for the first time. It sort of jumped out at me. And when I was going through the pictures, I noticed that there was a, a narrative just laying there in front of me just to, to organize and, and, and represent to the public. So the, um, you know, the first body of work that I released from that whole series that I photographed uh, was that body of work for that very reason. The book is called Destroy This Memory, and Richard Mizrak goes to great lengths to let the images speak for themselves. There are no essays, no captions. There's no page numbers, there's no titles. I, I, I really wanted just the words that people wrote to do all the work. So um, the book opens actually with a photograph, and all it is is on the side of the building, uh, somebody wrote help with exclamation points twice, help, help. I mean, what would it take for somebody to write on their home with spray paint, a message to some unknown presence. I mean, it's it's pretty pretty strange and, and powerful sort of uh, uh, active. I don't know if despair or hope or fear or sort of more maybe more existential, just sort of just communicating with the universe. A number of the messages Richard Mizrak photographs reference the dead. Some are chilling, like possible body. And some are simple, RIP signs on houses and fences for Zach and G. Perkins and Thomas Burke, a.k.a. Tab. A number of these death notices, though, refer to animals. Tens of thousands of pets were left behind when the storm hit, and, um, and many of them died, many of them perished. Uh, um, people were not able to come back in time. And uh, I think the most important, maybe the key photograph for me from this series is the one that says nine dash 30, September 30th, SPCA, 2 DOA, K9. Um, here you have this really economical code of just cold, simple information that lets you know that two um, uh, dogs uh, were dead on arrival and the SPCA was there. And when I saw that, I was just like, that just, that, that, that made me feel that there was something going on with these messages. They're so economical in their use of, of words that they're almost like poetry but without being, trying to be arty, not without trying to be poetic. Part of it is too, is a lot of these, these messages, you're not quite sure who they're, they're written to. It's, they're almost like text messages, but more primitive. In some of the messages Richard Mizrak photographs, you can make out who the recipients are. These are the angry messages. Richard Mizrak finds a lot of anger in New Orleans. There was this anger towards FEMA and Bush, those, you know, political anger. Uh, and then one of the things that I found very interesting was the anger towards the insurance companies, which hasn't been covered that much. And I thought that that was really important because a lot of people brought it up. When I first got to the Gulf Coast, uh, somebody told me that, um, you know, if you had flood insurance, then the insurance companies would say, well, this, the damage was caused by the wind. And if you had like hurricane or storm insurance, they said it was caused by water. And uh, the insurance companies just, you know, bent over backwards not to uh, fulfill the claims because, frankly, there was probably so so much of it they probably couldn't. So they had to find ways to get out, and so people were really, really angry. And you could see that in the photographs too. Um, again, their their words say it all. Uh, um, I got fucked by Allstate. I, I just I think that's really powerful. That the guy was so angry he didn't even have time to add the ED to fucked. 
you know. And uh, but it, the message comes across. I noticed that there's all these different uh, ranges of emotions people went through. There was even, you know, uh, a gallows humor, which was really powerful and, and sort of showed the resilience of the New Orleans. Um, I, I found that really very, very uplifting in some ways that people could find this kind of humor. Even, um, well, there's things that are unintentionally humorous where there's a car on top of a boat and the boat owner puts a nice little note to the, the, the car owner to please remove his car carefully so he doesn't damage the boat. There's a house that had been lifted up and, and set in the middle of the road. And then, um, and if you look really carefully in the, in the background, you can see that there's a car that's actually been lifted up and put on top of a fence. And then, then somebody had the, the wherewithal to write Wicked Witch with an arrow pointing down at the ground on the, on the side of the house. And they actually put um, boots and, and leggings that look like a Wicked Witch's. And um, so somebody, I, I don't know who went to all that trouble, but, um, and, and who they were doing it for, but um, people were able to, to sort of find some humor to, to sort of deal with it. And it's amazing that that, that humor can, can really help there. And I, it was not only, yeah, obviously it worked for them, but it, it was messages sent out to the world. Something I think that's um, so affecting about these images for me, and this is why I photographed them, is that even the spray paint people people's personality comes through in the painting in the in the way the actual way they're painting like this is a good example or the cover destroy this memory which is written in cursive i mean um it's very painterly with people not trying to make art not trying to be you know um expression expressive they're just they're just literally just sending a message with paint and it, it's uh it's it's very it's very effective you know it's so uh, again, these are just ex existential. I mean, to have the wherewithal to write destroy this memory in cursive on your home after a disaster like this, I mean, who would write that? What 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 do they mean? And uh, um, I, I, I love the ambiguity. I also love the fact that that's um, got a, a sort of a double entendre. It's very much about photography. And, you know, on one hand, it's, it's saying we want to forget this. On the other hand, I think it's so important for photography to preserve this, this chapter in uh, Katrina history. There is something shocking about the images in Destroy This Memory because as much as we live in a moment where everyone supposedly can get their voice heard, these raw messages suggest otherwise. In fact, these messages are stark reminders of just how rare it is to hear the actual voice of the people rather than some media or political construct. Of course, there are a few pictures in the book where Richard Mizrak calls attention to himself as a photographer, especially if you're familiar with his work. But there is one sequence where he deliberately makes himself known. He shoots the same message three times, a close-up, a medium shot, and a long shot. Yeah, that was very conscious. Uh, I wanted to break up the flow a little bit and, and just just have the, the viewers stop for a second and think about, oh, you know, the pictures sort of mediate all this. And um, it's very subtle, but, but, but it was important to me. I don't know if you can call the message subtle. The message is, f*** you. Yeah, I mean, actually, originally, uh, originally the cover was going to be the first, uh, fuck you. Um, 
In fact, I don't think my, public, my publisher was sort of challenging me on that, but what you're looking at is um, it's the side, we don't know what it is, it's very abstract, but somebody wrote, I can't tell if it's pencil or charcoal, um, uh, you know, just fuck you, and it looks like a side of a wall or something, and as you pull back, you realize it's the side of a semi-trailer, I think, <clears throat> and you see it in the landscape with a, you know, cribs and a home, and uh, I even think that's uh, uh, Bert or Ernie, actually I can't tell, yeah, I think it's Ernie. Ernie's in the crib, and you see no context of the larger storm. But originally, I like you know the close-up of the fuck you for the for the book because it's again it's almost an existential fuck you. It's like who is that addressed? Is that to the government? Is that to the insurance companies? Is that to God? Uh, is that you know? Uh, it's hard hard to um or to a neighbor. I mean it's it, and I I like the ambiguity of that I felt like this was this whole experience was one big fuck you. obviously you know both the right and the left and, the, and people with other political ideas all use social media and all use these tools to spread their ideas but this i think is, is what has really given the, the tea party movement a force that you haven't seen you have a well-funded infrastructure of more of more traditional media outlets that reinforce these messages and, and obviously you know <laughs> the best known and most prominent is obviously the fox news channel where all, all of these ideas, including the outlandish ones like the Obama birther theory or Islamophobia or, 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 or so many of these ideas uh, are, are allowed to nurture. We're talking about people who just live in this bubble nonstop. Uh, they get in the car and they listen to Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity. They get out of the car and start making dinner at five o'clock and they turn on Glenn Beck. And these people reinforce each other's messages and, and they reinforce the message that their audience wants to hear. And... Uh, after a while, you, you can see this hermetically sealed world where these, where where real facts can't penetrate. Early on in my reporting, I went to a uh, uh, Glenn Beck actually did a book signing uh, near my home in Pennsylvania, and uh, uh, you know I went out there and talked to people, and I I was struck by this one guy I met named Al Whalen, who is a uh, 74-year-old man who um, had worked until age 73 as, as a mortgage broker and. Uh, got laid off and uh, didn't want to be laid off. He didn't want to retire. He was actually still looking for work every day, but uh, wasn't finding it, obviously. And uh, after he became unemployed, he became a uh, just a huge fan of Fox News and a fan of Glenn Beck, who, who he never would have seen if he was still working, because if he was still working, he wouldn't have been home at 5 o'clock when Beck comes on. But instead, watching Beck became a nightly ritual in his home. And I, I, asked, I, um, I tracked him down after the rally and asked him if it was okay if I watched... Uh, an episode of Beck with, with him and his wife. And uh, uh, I mean, it was, it was very informative. I mean, it was funny because he and his wife, I think, really wanted for getting different things out of Beck. I mean, uh, with Al, the husband, I mean, he, he felt he was getting facts, uh, as he told me from, from you know, that he, he told me that Beck has a big staff that researches things and, and he's giving people facts and, and that nobody else is doing that, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, this, again, this is something I heard from. Tea Party movement activist time and time again. It was, inter- it was interesting because his wife Lorraine uh, really responded to Beck on a much more emotional level. You know that um, she believed the number of conspiracies about Obama, and that, and that during a commercial break she told me that 
you know, she feels that America is just is suffocating or is is drowning. Uh, you know, after watching 20 minutes of Beck, and um, she started to tear up, like kind of like Glenn Beck himself does. You know, and um, you know, it was interesting to see this emotional. You know, uh, uh, the the way that Beck, uh, who's just a very talented entertainer, and, and and that's all he is. I mean, he's not a political thinker at all, but he, but uh, when it comes to entertainment, he's a professional, he's skilled, and he's he's very skilled at tapping into people's emotions. And, and you know, I, and I, I think to, to watch that firsthand, I mean, people who are progressives are kind of immune to that. We roll our eyes, but the people who are not so cynical towards that message. Um, you know, that he's able to tap into their emotions and, and, and their fears and their anxieties. And, um, and it's a powerful thing. And, 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 you know, when you say, well, why can't you reason with people? Uh, it's hard. I mean, I think emotion, emotion tends to trump reason in debates. And, and uh, you know, and I think it's a real obstacle for progressives, um, you know, in, in trying to overcome that. It's like, well, why don't, you know, it's like, why don't we just... Um, you know, why don't we just try and teach these Tea Party people the real facts about American history? Well, it's not that easy. They don't, they don't necessarily want the real facts. They, they, want, they want the information the way it's presented by somebody like Glenn Beck. You know, I see this play out in, in so many ways. And part of the popularity of, of Glenn Beck, who uh, has really emerged in the last couple of years as kind of a spiritual leader, a guru to this, this whole Tea Party movement, is, uh, is his posturing as somebody who's offering them research and facts to kind of back up their, their beliefs, you know, beliefs, which are kind of driven more by, by fear and anxiety than, than, than kind of a rational approach to what's going on. Um, really a turning point, I think in his, in his career at Fox, when he moved over there was um, uh, right at kind of a low point in March of 2009, it was when the stock market was at its absolute low, for example. And in the recession, I think was really kind of bottoming out at that time. He did a special program on, on Friday the 13th, March 13th, of 2009, uh, it was the program where he launched what, what became the 912 project, you know, which was really a, a rival group to the Tea Party. And, um, you know, it, it, it was kind of a masterfully done show. It, it's the episode that he's famous, um, where you, if you've ever seen the clip of Beck crying and saying, uh, you know, I, I can't help it, but I love my country and I fear for it. But, but I think the real strength of that was the message was he's telling people that that you are not alone. These dark forces are against us, and, and but we're more powerful. That there's more of us. He said they don't surround us; we surround them. This was really where he poured his emotion into into people's anxiety. That that while there were dark forces out there to get people, that we're good, and there's more of us. And and uh, you know, I mean, the 912 movement really took off after that. And in fact, the uh, the Delaware 912 Patriots uh, was formed specifically after that show. Uh, they formed this group, the 912, uh, Delaware 912 Patriots, that has hundreds of members and really was a critical group in, in helping Christine O'Donnell win that Senate election down there. And it was all inspired by this Glenn Beck, You Are Not Alone program. And so um, I think this is the big issue of our time, isn't it? You know, it's kind of uh, rationality versus uh, emotion. When I dropped Mary off at her apartment... She ended up inviting me in. You took her home? Yeah. I viewed it as like, you know, research. So we go into the front door and I take one step inside. She flips the light on and I am staring into the eyes of Glenn Beck. She's got 
She's literally got a life-size like cutout Glenn Beck standing there waving as you walk into the door. And I was like, whoa. And she's like, oh yeah, I love it. Every time I come home, Glenn Beck greets me at the door. It's awesome. <laughs> so she leads me past uh, Glenn and into the apartment. And I'm looking around and it's, it's like a Glenn Beck museum. You know, it's, it's posters on the wall, it's, it's books, it's knickknacks, it's, it's got a bobblehead, uh, some plush throw pillows. I mean, she, it, she's got everything going on. And it's all, it's all Glenn Beck and, and tea party stuff. And uh, I, I, I noticed that the TV's on and I, I, my mind is kind of blank at this point. I'm just soaking in a lot and I just, I just say, oh, uh, I think you left the TV on. And I, as, I, as I'm saying it, I, I notice that it's, it's on Fox, which I guess isn't surprising. And she says, oh, no, I mean, I leave it on. I like to leave on Fox News for the furniture while I'm gone. <laughs> So I say to her, I guess you're not really big on energy conservation. And she's just like, yeah, whatever, kind of rolls her eyes and smiles and said, hang on just a second. I'm going to go slip into something more comfortable. And she walks off into the bedroom. And so I'm standing there and I, and I start to look around more. And everything I look at in this apartment is just terrifying. Up on, up on the wall, she's got this print of Glenn Beck standing in the spot on the Lincoln Memorial, you know, that rally that they just did in Washington. So he's standing on the spot where Martin Luther King stood and, you know, it's, it's, it's a signed poster. It's got a price tag on it. It's like 300 bucks and she got it from some website. Definitely the craziest thing I saw, though was a crucifix it was a red white and blue crucifix but you know with like a flag print so part of it was like red and white stripes and then there's a blue the top near the top was blue with stars but instead of jesus on the crucifix it's glenn fucking back there there's some incredible stuff and at this point she comes out of the bedroom She's walking towards me. She is wearing a leopard skin print bra and panties with a matching leopard skin print holster on her garter with a pistol in it. She looks really hot. I mean, smoking. So she's walking towards me, looks me right in the eye, and says, so, what do you think of Glenn Beck? So, so now, now there I am. I, I know like this is, a, this is a critical moment. I, I have to say the right thing on like a lot of levels, okay? I, I got, I got a hot girl here. I don't want to ruin the moment. So, and I don't want to get thrown out. And also, I don't want to get shot. 
So I I pause for a second. I look her in the eye and I say, Mary, you are not alone. And two minutes later, we're in the bedroom. She's grinding on top of me. She's still got the gun. And so the gun is, is pointing at, at the wall. It's pointing at herself. So she's pointing it at me. And all this time is she is screaming, I am not alone. I am not alone. I am not alone. This episode of Too Much Information is called Beyond the Fruited Plain, Part 1. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen, and it featured Zoe Trod, Will Bunch, Richard Mizrak, and our TMI Washington, D.C. correspondent, Chris. Tune in next week as the saga continues. On the playlist page, you can find links and images, and you can subscribe to the TMI podcast. All that at WFMU.org.